You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 4, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for joining me. If you're a repeat listener, thanks so much for coming back. And please recommend to your friends. Today's podcast is going to be different than the previous episodes. The first dealt with policy and sort of learning about different things that are going on in medicine. Today's going to be a little more practical, I guess you'd say. There'll still be a bit of a story in finding out about direct primary care, but we're going to discuss how you go about starting direct primary care practice and figuring out exactly, you know, when to start, what parts you need to do, and what resources there are. There are actually a ton of resources we're going to talk about today, so don't feel like you need to write everything down. It'll all be available on the show notes page at the end of the, um, at the website, which is at www.theparadox, and that's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S dot com, and just look under episode four, which is the interview with Dr. Chad Savage. I'd recommend you also visit my Patreon page, at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Uh, you'll find some bonus footage if you become a subscriber uh, and just uh, donate a few dollars a month to help keep the show on the air. Uh, you can get access to that, and I'll add more as more people uh, join in. But it's at least a kind of fun little pilot, uh, my first pilot podcast, I guess you'd say. And so it's kind of fun to see a little bit behind the scenes action and find a little bit more about my daughter, Catherine. <laughs> anyway, uh a final note about this episode. At some point during this this episode, my my microphones just kind of went crazy. Actually, it was mine. So you'll hear some weird staticky thing that goes on with uh, Dr. Savage's microphone. His is actually pretty good, but the production quality definitely, at about the 40-minute uh, mark or so, will definitely deteriorate a little bit. But it's still very listenable. I had to re-record some of my questions because they were really impossible. Uh, so once again, I learned a little bit more about GarageBand, a little bit more how to edit it. So learning experience for me, but I think you'll still find the show very enjoyable and also very informative. I'm joined here today with my friend, Dr. Chad Savage, who is, serves on the Michigan State Medical Society Committee with me. That's how I first met him. Uh, we're in the regulation and legislation, which is as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> we pretty much discuss, you know, regs and legs in the state of Michigan, how it in fact affects healthcare and physicians and patients and Weigh in and sort of how the society should lobby. The just state got listening. done with that meeting, so I need a shot of caffeine to get going. Right, at least at least one, maybe a double espresso or something. Yeah. Uh, that's actually pretty interesting if you're interested in policy, which clearly I am because I've got a podcast here, and I mean we're both sitting here, so clearly yeah. we're interested in that sort of thing. Nerd, nerd hour, yeah, nerd. Yeah, well, although anything in medicine is pretty much nerd yeah, hour, yeah. right? I mean, I think you know, it just depends on what where you channel your nerdiness, and for for us, it's also in a policy, right? Uh, the so the discussion today, we had an earlier episode on direct primary care where I talked to Dr. Amat, 
and I'll reference that in the show notes page today. Again, any links we use or discuss today, um, organizations, whatever, we'll have uh, in the show notes page later so that people can find those. So you just go to theparadox.com and you should be able to get access to all that information. So the first question today is, Dr. Savage is a primary care doctor. Why don't you just tell us a little bit, uh, actually, your education through residency and then your primary and your practice until you entered in direct primary care? Sure, sure. Well, um, I'm a Michigan native, so I grew up in the, in the area. I uh, went to Uni- University of Michigan for undergrad, and I went to Case Western down in, in Cleveland for my med school, and I went to Wash U, uh, Washington University in St. Louis for my residency before coming back to be with my family. I actually practiced an insurance-based practice for about 13 years uh, before I def- decided to jump ship and go uh, insurance-free in the direct primary care model. And your residency was, I assumed, internal medicine? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, internal okay, medicine. Okay, right. So you went from Michigan to Ohio and then to Missouri and then back. So, and, and when you would say you use an insurance-based model, for people who are listening here, obviously that is, we're going to talk about direct primary care today again, uh, and then we're, specifically, that's more where you leave the traditional, I'll say, again, in air quotes, the traditional healthcare uh, model where you either are in private practice or you're within some sort of large health system, but essentially you use a third-party system where you're using either Medicare or Medicaid to ma- pay the bills or a private insurance company like Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever. Yeah, paid by something other than the patient. Right. So the patient pays or they work someplace and they get their coverage. And so that's how their bills get paid. They're not the ones making the transaction. It would be sort of like going, you hit a deer, you know, we're in Michigan, so we hit deer all the time, right? So you hit a deer and, you know, you go to the body shop and they, they pay the, the insurance company pays the bill. You don't actually care oftentimes what the bill is from the repair shop you might know go to a reputable one but you don't care if it's two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars because most in most insurances in michigan you know if you hit a deer that's totally covered 100 percent you usually actually there's there's if i can digress for a second onto that analogy there's a fascinating uh, analogy of the body shop and the difference of a third-party system and insurance-based payment. And so we're not go, discussing pri- uh, plastic surgery, by the way. So go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So if you go to uh, if you go if you get in a car crash, you go to the body shop, and uh, you know, non-plastic surgery, and uh, and you know they the first question they ask you they say, are you going to pay with insurance? And if you say yes, I'm going to pay with insurance. They usually go, oh great, good, because you you know you got this scratch over here on the door. Yeah, you know, it probably wasn't anything to do with the accident, <laughs> but you're running it through the insurance company now, so you know we can we can take that door off. We'll repaint it. And you'll get you know, hey, it's all good. It's going through your insurance. Don't worry about it. It might have happened during the accident, right? Who yeah, knows? Who knows? Right? Yeah. Who knows? Uh, so you're happy because you think it got paid for by the insurance. Of course, who paid for the insurance? You did originally, so it does come back to hit you in the wallet. Um, and they're they're very excited because they get to make this really big bill, and they they match maximize the bill. Um, and you compare that to the non-insurance-based approach where you come in now and they ask you the question, well, are you going to use insurance to fix your car? And you say, no, no. And they go, ah, okay, well, you know, we can just bump that out, buff it out a little bit for you. You know, it'll be okay. We'll give you 20% off. And they, there's a compassion understanding that you're paying for it. So there's an obscuration of the payment of the bill. When you pay it through a third party, there's this imaginary fallacy that it costs no one anything and you're not the one who actually pays for it and yet you did in the premium in the first place so it's interesting how it it it, it really coerces the care in in many ways when you get this um uh you know obscuration of the payment sure well and, and my wife and i moved to an hsa this year mm-hmm. uh, hmo hsa um, insurance product 
where you're buying all the, you know, you're buying all the medical, st- uh, your prescriptions and everything. And there's no copay. And, and I mean, for the first time, we're actually not looking at just convenience of where we're getting medication, but it's the cost. And so we use you know, various apps to find out where, the, you know, where it changes how you think about things. Oh, absolutely. Right? No question. I mean, and I, I mean, anyone who's involved in making the purchase versus not making the purchase, there's no question it changes your behavior. And I don't care how much you know, money you make. You, there's definitely uh, there's definitely something that comes along with that. So it's anyway, it's your money, right? No, I mean, no question when you're part of that. So you've gone into uh, you were in practice in sort of we'll just say a traditional practice. And again, we're not going to mention any specific healthcare systems or whatever because, quite frankly, what we're discussing is no different anywhere in the country. I can't imagine it's really when we're talking about the, the payment model, whether you're using a third party payer or which is again traditional, like either government payer or uh, insurance company. There's no difference between that and in you know, Tuscaloosa than it is in Augusta, man. It's all pretty much the same versus, you know, here in Michigan, the great state of Michigan, where we haven't quite hit spring yet. It's almost, you know, it's mid-April now. Uh, so you moved to direct primary care. So how did you first hear about it? Um, well, I was pretty disenchanted, rather, by the insurance model. And, and I found, so actually the beginning began with disillusionment. Mm-hmm. You know, I went in, as many of us do, in medical school, and I was idealistic and thought how wonderful this noble profession we were entering into. And I really did believe it, and I, in many regards still do believe it to this day. But then the actual practice, I found, was something other than that. It was it was very bureaucratic and, and paper, and it just, it was not this wonderful interpersonal relationship healing relationship that i envisioned it is really you know uh, uh you know by marcus welby you know encapsulated it was this um it was just very much a, a almost a treadmill and then i actually realized that it wasn't it wasn't just a factory type feeling by mistake it's actually now in, in fact very intentionally being designed that way um uh, sig sigma i believe is the name of it and yeah the toyota Right. Yeah, the yeah. Toyota approach, and exactly. where they actually were having auto executives come to try to help increase the efficiency of, of medical care. Well, that sounds great on the surface until you realize the model that they're they're trying to build it like is an assembly line, and and very much felt like a, a worker on an assembly line. Well, you know, I, I didn't forego the better wages of a specialty, a subspecialty, to be go, become a primary care doctor to to be an assembly line worker. I did it because I wanted to maintain those personal relationships, get to know people. That's the real value. The payment of medical of primary care isn't always monetary. It's those relationships, and that that was being squished out of my profession, thus defeating the reason I went into it. So right. I looked around, and I wanted to see what else is out there. And uh, I saw at the time, and this was maybe around 2010 or so, that there was something called concierge that was starting to be uh, come come into vogue. Uh, but concierge was a little different in its design. They recognized that if you had 3,000 patients, and I had between 3,000 and 3,500 patients when I was an insurance doctor. And that's a full-time patient panel. Yeah, right? that were the number of patients that were assigned to me that I had to provide care for. So these concierge docs had something unique. They had panels of around 500 patients, so they were able to give much better care. But recognizing the costs of the insurance-based system, they said, well, if we're going to take care of 500 patients and support this massive you know, infrastructure of a practice, uh, yeah, yeah, six-to-one ratios or whatever, if I'm assuming that's what you're saying, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, we have to 
pay more or charge more. Like so they six were, times more, let's yeah, say, right? Yeah, six times more, yeah. So they would have to charge uh, for, for like $3,000 just to have the opportunity to be part of that practice. Then they'd still bill your insurance company after that, still bill the individual co-payments for, for visits after that. So I immediately recognized that that was not what I wanted to do. I don't begrudge anyone who does this. But that was going to be very much limited to the, the quite well-off to be able to afford that kind of care. So then uh, several years later, I I, uh, stumbled on what Josh Umber and uh, Lee Gross and some of the pioneers of the direct primary care movement were doing with direct primary care, in which they they had accomplished essentially the same thing, having very small panels, providing fantastic care. But what they were doing were they were, were doing at a much lower price point by eliminating the costs of dealing with the insurance company. They just decided instead of charging more to deal with your insurance company and see fewer people, we're going to take care really well of a smaller number of people but eliminate the cost of the third-party payer system. So therefore, the insurance companies and, and, and uh, therefore give concierge-like care but do it through what was called direct primary care, meaning the patient eventually, just like in that auto shop example, is paying for that bill. They might as well just make it transparent, pay for it up front, and then actually pay less in the aggregate and, uh, and get better care. Right. So you're, you're basically having people come straight to you, and they're just paying a membership model. Yep. And, they're, and certainly in today, probably it's the economics are more in your favor, right? I mean, because yeah. probably 25 years ago, Insurance was pretty cheap. There are hardly any copay. I mean, there's now you can say, well, I'm never going to meet this stupid deductible. I might as well have something where I can actually see someone and not because my copays are more expensive than maybe this membership or whatever, right? And we talked about this with Dr. Mott. So before we talk about the specifics, because the point of this interview is many, many respects is going to be if, if I'm a physician out there listening right now, either one coming out of training or someone who's in established practice. How do I do this? But the question before that I want to ask is, how has it changed your life since you've moved to that model? How, how, you know, your mood, your going to work, all those sorts of things. Well, I, you probably can't hear it in my voice, but I'm smiling. And I joke, at, actually, last time with, with Eric here at the last meeting, I said you knew who the direct primary care doctor was at the table because I was the only doctor smiling. Uh, so, so that's kind of a, uh, you know, encapsulates the, the difference. Um, you know, so actually, it's funny just to, to finish up the prior thought. So after I saw what Josh and Lee and some of the others were doing, you know, people said, oh, you immediately jumped on and decided to do it. And I said, no. I thought it was very interesting. I watched them for several years to make sure they didn't die. Right, <laughs> because my I was convinced that it was so different from the rest of the system. Though I immediately recognized the 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 beauty of what they were trying to accomplish, it was so out of step with the rest of our system that I was convinced that they, it was it was not going to be a viable financial. That people model. wouldn't go for it, right? Yeah, I mean, there's right. no. It's not the way things are done. So you think, yeah. well, these guys are going to be with their hat out in the corner, right? Yeah. Trying to exactly. So then when I saw that they not only didn't die, but they were flourishing. I decided to throw my hat into the ring and, and, and give it a, a go. And here I am about three years later, and I'm, I'm very blessed. I have a full practice. I'm literally shutting it down to new patients, my own. In full is now. how many? And I have 700. Now, the average DPC doc usually has around 500, but I decided to use a slightly lower cost point, which meant I had to take on slightly fewer, uh, more patients, but it's still you know, a fraction of what I was seeing sure. in the insurance model. And your pay has, not without going to specifics, has it changed? Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, it, it, did, it did go down, but not much. So, um, and in fact, I'm not sure how it's going to, uh, last year I was still in, and I'll be, I'll be open about it. I was a little over 200,000, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty online that's, for a primary care doctor. That's pretty good actually for primary care. Yeah. I, my wife's a pediatrician and you know, they don't, they work for peanuts pretty much. But yeah. Yeah. Compared to other. Um, 
So, I mean, you, I've had people, I've worked for a mountain bike. <laughs> I've worked for <laughs> eggs. So I have, there, it is funny because people have kind of joked about that. Like, well, what can I, can I pay in eggs? And I'm like, well, sure, whatever, bring them in, you know. So, but there is almost a component of barter that's come back into this where I had one gentleman, he, he, I wanted a new mountain bike. He had a mountain bike that was wonderful he wasn't using. He said, can I give you that? Sure. I gave him a year of my service and he gave me a nice mountain bike, which I enjoy. That's not so a bad deal. Yeah, right. Great, great, great uh, arrangement. But, um, uh, but yeah, so, so it's, uh, but now, now that I'm maxed out, I wasn't maxed out last year. I'm maxed out. So it'll likely be above that. It'll be north of it somewhat, not incredibly, which will be pretty close. I was very productive insurance doc. So, but it'll be getting closer to what I, I made at that time. But the difference is, again, it wasn't about dollars. It was about happiness. And I was, mm-hmm. I was, to be quite honest, I was becoming miserable in what I was doing. I was burning out. I was starting to count the years to retirement, which is sad because I'm in, in my mid forties. And at the time I was in my early forties. Um, and uh, now I, I don't. I don't. My wife's a pediatrician as well, and she's still in the insurance model, and she is very much counting the days and the days, and, the, and she keeps moving that date closer and closer. Mm-hmm. So she, she's, she's a saveaholic for one reason, because she wants to get out. And it's kind of sad to think that way, but that's the way she thinks. She, she's like, I need to save as much money, make as much money as I can right now, save it all up so I can get <laughs> out as quick as possible. And that's so sad because it used to be as a doctor – that you know, it was a noble profession. Not my dad would do it, and my grandpa would do it, and it was multi generational. Not mine specifically, but most were. Mm-hmm. Many sure, docs were sure. multi generational because it was such a great deal. I mean, you got paid to take care of people. It was a double positive. It was a wonderful profession. Well, now it's more than half of doctors do not recommend, in fact, actively dissuade their children from going in the medical profession. So what happened? And I think it's that we sold our souls for a short-term financial gain. We sold our souls and gave up control and, and being the practice of medicine to third parties, which now you know, we, we act as marionettes and control us, and we dance around when they tell us to dance around. Right, because you know, it was easier to get payment and more reliable because yep. it, because they, because Medicare is only going to give you they're going to give you dollars they're not going to give you eggs ever. Yeah, actually, right? the history of it's kind of interesting because it goes back to the original Blue Cross Blue Shield, which were separate entities. One was for hospitalization, one was for doctors, and doctors agreed to these contracts with them because they said, well, you know, so many people don't pay us. Well, now the bad debt rate on uh, is something around sixty percent. So it's like you collect sixty cents on every dollar. Which means, actually, if you look at it historically, that's probably worse <laughs> than what they originally were, uh, you know, in, in experiencing when dealing directly with patients. And I can tell you from our own experience, though we, of course, have some people who don't pay their their bills. It's quite a small fraction compared to what it was under the insurance model. And I've got this whole graphic I call it DPC math, and it shows how when you pay at the time of service, you have much much less bad debt. So essentially, every dollar you charge, more of it is going to actual medical care. Yeah. Well, and you have better eggs now. I mean, yeah. Oh, so, and they're I mean, fresh so, and yummy, right? Delicious. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you went into you went to DPC, and you, yep. so you, once you saw that it worked, yep. and you saw guys, you said, "I'm not going to starve. I'm going to be able to provide for my family yep. because I know people who are not physicians find this amazing. We actually have families. We have mm-hmm. children. We uh, we have who like to see us occasionally. Like to see us, and. Uh, you know, when you look at a, the training for a physician, your primary care, you're done at age 30, mm-hmm. right? If you go kind of straight through, you're done, you're undergrad at 22, you're under, done to medical school at 26, and for your residency, you're about 30. Mm-hmm. You may go into specialty or whatever, but some family practice may be 29. But you're 29, 30 years old, 
and you're carrying a significant debt of about a quarter million dollars now, sometimes a little bit north of that, depends if you had college undergraduate debt as well. And you got to pay that off, and you're, you know, you're you might be making a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, but you've, you're paying off. You got a lot of interest, and you got a lot of yeah. expenses and things like that. And, so, and it can be a challenge because it's not immediately flip the switch, put out the hang the shingle, as they used to say, and and all of a sudden you have a full practice and you're making six figures. It, unfortunately, it's it's a little like the old way of practicing medicine where people built a practice. Mm-hmm. So people who are thinking about doing direct primary care mm-hmm. really need to take that into consideration. That there's a ramp phase. You, you can't expect unless you are converting a very you know very successful existing practice and you expect to retain a lot of those patients, there is a period of time that you have to ramp up. So you have to kind of budget for that. And it's interesting because there's two different approaches. Josh, I'll reference him again, Josh Umber, he, he came right out of residency. From and, Kansas, is that from correct? From Kansas, yep. And he, he started his direct primary care practice. And he has an interesting take on it because it was different than mine. He says it's best to do it right out of residency. And the reason why, he says you're already used to living fairly yeah um, you already know what ramen noodles taste like right yeah exactly yeah so so there's a heart there so that's a great way of looking at it because you're already kind of used to a tight budget and you do have it for a little bit and you can literally have no staff when you start with that kind of model and in fact i know one doctor who had no office when he started in that model (laughs) he literally did everything just going to people's uh houses and all house visits all house visits until he built up a large enough patient census that he could afford a, a rental space and he's got that now and he's He's flourishing. He's down in Detroit. His name's Paul Tom- Thomas, Dr. Paul Thomas. And, and uh, from what I understand, he's doing really well down there. Um, and you compare that to what I did where I took an existing practice and converted it. In some regards, it's easier. In other regards, it's harder. Yeah. And, and it, the, I, I started with more patients right off the bat. I had several hundred patients um, you know, with a lot of education and groundwork to, to make them aware of what I was doing because it was still such a foreign concept when we first started. Um, but I had a, a big head start, so I was able to start with a practice. But I also started with a mortgage, so I had to do that. Right. Um, so, um, so there's, there's, and and I, I was used to the doctor's lifestyle at that point, not living lavishly, but having expenses that are set like a mortgage that aren't easy to modify. So, so there's different hurdles with different uh, uh, approaches, but there's also different advantages. With, so, um, all right, we have uh, discussed. Where you start, I think you know. So your your answer would be it kind of depends what you want to do, right? If yeah. you want to come right out of residency and you say this is kind of how I want, I've seen that Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah, that's the kind of doctor I want to be. That's why I went to medicine. Yeah. I want to have that because medicine is not. I'm a specialist as an anesthesiologist, so I do not. I spend five minutes trying to convince someone that I will not kill them and that they will survive after the procedure. And honestly, I, I enjoy that challenge to get established rapport. And putting people at ease. And here you're doing a podcast. I thought you guys didn't like to talk. Well, that's you know, it's that's probably why maybe I'm not meant for anesthesia. I wonder at times. Yeah, my I told my came home from medical school and after my anesthesia rotation and and said told my wife said oh that this anesthesia is pretty cool. I think this might be what I want to do. And she just burst out laughing, assuming that I was joking because she thought it was the most boring rotation she'd been in. She couldn't imagine anything worse than anesthesia where you just kind of sit there and watch someone while they're sleeping, right? My wife should, thought I should have gone into anesthesia. I always put her to sleep. Yeah, well, I've gotten that joke many times. Yeah, right. I, all I do is pass gas and yeah. put people to sleep, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so really, you can come either straight out of residency or you're the, you've like tried the sort of current model and you're like, this is just kind of not what I thought medicine was going to be and I'd like to try something different. 
And like anything, right, if you're used to some sort of, and it doesn't have to go to medicine. I mean, if you have some sort of job somewhere and you say, I'm going to be open to business, you've sacrificed whatever income you might have had at your job, and now you're, you're, you're risking. I mean, it's a risky venture in some ways, right? You yeah. just have to trust that you're, that you're the type of person who's going to be successful in it, meaning people like you enough to come see you, right? I mean, yeah. it's, well, well, I mean, it's actually, it's interesting. People say, what's the first thing you assess when you want to decide if you want to go into something like dark primary care? And it's actually the first thing to assess is yourself. Yeah, get the hardest thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and you really have to determine your mental fortitude for it because at this stage though it's growing rapidly and and the hope is that the pioneers who are laying the groundwork with direct primary care get it out of the unfamiliar range and get it familiar because then it won't be such a such a harrowing task for people to consider doing it um but you have to say okay i will encounter some hurdles can i deal with that will i flex, will i be able to adjust and adapt as as challenges arise and understand there's a huge uh, movement in in direct primary care of doctors supporting each other in fact that's what I, why i'm here today um uh there's the, there's facebook pages and things of that sort where there's a free flow of ideas and support there's organizations set up to try to actively help people convert to direct primary care like the uh, dpca direct primary care alliance which was recently formed with assault with the primary intention of helping to guide doctors who are considering going into direct primary care there's books out there doug farrago has has a book uh, uh for direct primary care talking about how to set it and kimberly corba uh another physician all, both are physicians has a manual with all the regulations and contracts and things this are and these are huge um starting points i mean we didn't have these things when I started, we we were, you know, laying the, laying the road to begin with. Now people can drive down those roads uh, uh, which have already been laid. Um, so um, that's a huge start. Uh, that's a huge benefit. I mean, literally, go from somebody like Lee Gross, who's one again one of the the founders of the movement. He told me his initial legal fees of setting up the contracts were sixty thousand dollars. Now, before you stop and and stop the podcast. That is not what it is anymore. <laughs> it had gotten down to about two grand by the time to, for all the legal forms and stuff to set up the practice. About two grand when I started, and if you're able to follow somebody like Kimberly's uh, book, you, I think you can buy the book for like five, six hundred. I looked up today; it's six hundred and ten dollars. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And I think if you're part of the DPCA, the Direct Primary Care Alliance, I believe there's a twenty percent discount. So, um, is there a membership fee for that? I. I think the first year, I don't believe there is, but don't, don't uh, quote me on that. Because they know no one has money the first year, right? That's yeah. right. That's right. Smart, smart. Okay, so I'm a doctor. I decided I'm going to do this, take this plunge. We're not going to care if we're a resident or a current resident planning a practice or we're going to, we're an established doctor. At this point, step by step, what am I doing now? So I, maybe I've gotten the, man, the, the guide or I've gotten some sort of guidance. Mm-hmm. So I have some idea like for maybe forms and things like that, which, you know, 600 bucks when you're already two, a quarter million dollars in debt. Yeah. What's that? 600 bucks. Right. So what's the first step? Well, probably figuring out a, a plan. I mean, you got to figure out, you want to figure out where you're going, right? You know, you can't go someplace, uh, you know, successfully, without wandering unless you know where you're going so you you, you kind of get, make a long-term plan what you want your practice to look like and then you figure out in your unique geography how to overcome those hurdles do you need a physical practice you know are, are you gonna are, what are the what was the rent gonna look like you know because everybody's dpc pricing the pricing for their practice is going to vary a little bit based on what you want to make what the cost of operating practice in your area may be so you kind of have to get a little bit of data collection so you know give yourself a little time to plan these things out don't do it in a hurry and do it poorly conceived um so there's something called zero balance budgeting where basically you you figure out how much you think something's going to cost to operate 
and then you you uh, you can put, for example, uh, uh, what you would expect to make on top of the expenses, and then you figure out how many patients you want to have. You divide that all by the number of patients, and there's your cost. That's exactly what I did. I, I knew how much it would cost to run my insurance-based practice. I, I took out the administrative cost of the hospital that I was employed under. I took out several other key aspects that were going to make it more efficient. I figured out how many patients I uh, planned to see and how much I, I thought I should be able to make, and that's how I came up with my pricing points and my patient cutoffs. So you looked at your salary, your endpoint salary, your clearance after expenses as sort of your goal yep. and see. And so I want to take care of 600 patients, make X amount of dollars, so I yep. need to charge this much per month yep, per exactly. person. So I, I wanted to basically get back to a reasonable primary care salary. I didn't, I didn't want to become a pauper doing it. I didn't care to be rich. I just wanted to enjoy the practice of medicine. That's how I came up with those numbers. Now everybody comes up with different numbers. Sure. Because if you're in yeah. a high-rent district you may either have to charge a little more per patient or see several more patients to cover that increased cost. If you're in a low-rent district, it could be the opposite. Um, if you decide to start with no staff, well, then pretty much anything beyond your direct operating expenses, your rent and whatever equipment you have, which in primary care tends to be quite low, um, then everything is salary. So they're almost all of their membership dues are coming to you in that setting. And that's and when I talked to Dr. Mott, her staff was zero. Yeah. She has yeah. just an office and takes care of the, everything herself. And, and, and we're flourishing now. We have a one-to-one ratio, one, one staff to one doc. <laughs> and I compare that to what it was before, and it was just astronomical. She we said so she was eight people. to one. Is that kind of what you'd say is... Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think because they're back office people and things you, people you don't see really. Absolutely. You, you know, I had one day before I left the insurance based practice where I was talking to a patient about what I was doing, and we were talking about the massive overhead. And I said, You're walking out tonight. It was my late night. So I was the only doc in this office. I said, Count how many people are here. And there were three front staff, two back staff, and an office manager for me. And that did not include the hospital administrators who employed me. The, the billing and coding people who are off-site and, all, and the HR staff and everything that the hospital had employed supposedly in support of my practice, and, and they did. And I, mm-hmm. I, I liked my hospital system. I have nothing against them. But it, just from an economic standpoint, it was insanely wasteful. And it was ta- I was taught a lie that the old model of a doctor and a nurse could not exist in this world nowadays because it's simply too complex. Medicine is advanced beyond that point, too complex. You can't do it anymore. Well, that's boulder dash to sound old. The, that, is, the, that is very old. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so it's boulder dash. Darn, gosh, darn it. Uh, and uh, because that's exactly what we're doing now. We have a medical assistant and the doctor, and, and we function very well under that, uh, under that model. So your so your MA just like answers phones and sets up appointments and things like that if needed. Yep, yep, you got okay. it. So so uh, she uh, she answers the phone and, and rooms the patients and I and we do so much through remote uh, communications now. So much is done through email and text messaging and things of that sort, which is wonderful for the patients because before they were by necessity had to go through a labyrinth to reach me. They had to talk to the front desk, to talk to the triage nurse, to t- send it to my MA, and eventually, if it was important enough and had gone through enough channels, it got to me. They had to do that because it was 3,000 patients, and I couldn't have direct contact with that many patients. But now with a lower number, they can directly contact me, and, and it, since it's very easy just randomly replying to a text, just like text message like you would with a family member or an email in the same regard, it, it actually it's quite manageable. People think, oh my gosh, that sounds terrifying, 24-7 access. Well, many docs actually have that right now. They just, you know, they don't, they don't advertise. Or it just it. piles up, and they have three hours of straight 
answering stuff that they do right yeah afterwards. that they're not compensated for and then are, are are resentful for it because that's uncompensated time they're they're answering phone calls and emails and or through a portal and and it changes how you answer it through a portal because you're you're since you're not compensated for answering something remotely in a traditional practice you're actually not incentivized to resolve that you're incentivized to drive an office visit oh yeah that sounds bad why don't you come in tomorrow and see me instead of saying oh can you send me a text message of that rash? Maybe I can treat it remotely, you know, and resolve that problem. And you can go to work tomorrow and en- enjoy your day. And and you know, I handled it easily and efficiently. And you know. sure. And from a medical legal standpoint, you may not know the patient as well as you have a handle on the patient population's one sixth what it was or one eighth, yeah. right? I mean, so you're going to know these people like this person's. You know, this is someone who is a very reliable source, and when they say they're sick, they're probably sick. Or this person's always saying they're sick, and they're really not. And so yeah, I'm not going to worry about it as much as we recognize else. most of them by their face and know who they are. Right, and and that's a big difference from from before. You know, we had literally someone who came in, we forgot to lock the back employee entrance and somebody wandered through that today <laughs> and immediately and i'm not revealing too much because i'm just saying a first name hey kevin why are you coming in that way you know so so but we knew who it was which was helpful because they were about to taser him but uh, no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing expense you need to have a taser on yes, hand no, right no tasers Tongue depressors and a taser. Uh, well, and medical liability is lower, too, because, because that b- better familiarity with, for us, for them, but also for, for them, for us. So when we, we're able to give them longer care, we're able to show compassion and empathy, which is, you know, which is actually good. That people are found to be more compliant when they understand their doctor is truly empathetic to their situation. They know that we're not doing things for ulterior motives because we're not, we're not doing it to try to facilitate a larger payment. It's a set payment. It's all up front, right? We've already yeah, know all it. Front. All the costs are out there. There's nothing surprising that's going to happen. True them. transparency, right? Um, so, so they understand that when we make suggestions, that they're truly in it for their best interest. So it really changes the practice of medicine. And then, all right. So the first you've decided you have a target salary, let's say, and you figure out what your expenses are going to be, and that way you can figure out your charges and your patient panel size. Yep. That's kind of how you determine. That's your first. After you determine the location, and make those determinations, then that. So that's and from there. So then there's, you have to decide what your expenses are, right? I mean, yep. because, so you have, how do you know how much you pay an MA? How much, how do you know how much you need in supplies, for instance? Is that, is there like, is that part of the manual that it has yep. these supplies in it? And yeah, you know, this th- many tongue depressors and this many, you know, Q-tips or whatever. Yep. And Atl- actually, there's several different sources I hadn't thought of initially, but Atlas MD, which is one of the um, electronic record systems specifically designed for dark primary care, and, and, you know, not to push it too much. That's the one I use, but I'm, I'm, that's uh, Josh Umber. He created that, uh, that electronic record system. I'm a huge fan of it because that incorporates things like the emails and text messaging all within the EMR. Um, but they have a lot of resources on that website. Anybody who's considering doing it, they have uh, little, like, tutorials as to how to start a dark primary care practice, and that's all free. And I'd encourage looking at that. But when I started it, they had a, a checklist of kind of common things that they did for their practices. So that was helpful to go and, and kind of look at it and price it out. And, and I'm a, an internist and he's a family doc, so not all of it, um, you know, was the same. Uh, and I found, uh, and you hear, hear wild speculation of startup costs from, from various places, from people going from, you know, up to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think that's just crazy. I was able to start mine for, for I, I budgeted 30000 I think I spent about 13000 uh, to start my practice. And that included, included the legal fees and purchasing of equipment and, and things because I kept it tight. And there's people who kept it tighter than me. You can, uh, honestly, if I had done it again, I would, I would go to eBay and get an EKG machine off of eBay. I, I bought a new one 
you know, I, I bought a lot of new equipment, but uh, my partner who joined me not too long ago, Dr. Cook, um, she's much more thrifty in that regard. We had to buy new uh, blood pressure cuffs, and she went to eBay and got perfectly fine blood pressure cuffs, and we stocked our rooms with all these used equipment that, that were incredibly inexpensive. So, so be mindful of the budgets, you know, in the early, early stages. But if you price some of those things out, you can start targeting a general idea of what it's going to cost you. And most of those are one-time expenses. You're going to pay them once, and and uh, and then uh, you know then you can figure out your ongoing expenses, which are going to be utilities, rent, staff if you have them, um, you know some some uh, accounting fees and stuff. Always get a good accountant, a good business accountant, accountant have a good attorney to 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 uh, to bounce things off in those early phases. Um, mm-hmm. Who's used to st- establishing businesses? So after you've purchased your uh, supplies from Uzbekistan off from, uh, <laughs> from off eBay. I'm sure it's all FDA approved. Yeah. Um, and you've, you've already determined the price. So you mentioned you've had a prior practice. So the next thing is, well, this is all great, except there's no one coming through your door. So how do you find people to come through your door? Websites, advertising, you know, bullhorns. I mean, what do you, what sort of things yeah. do, so, do you so do? That can vary again, based on, you know, if you already have an established practice, the best source of of new patients is your old patients so if you're in a situation that allows you to recruit them and that's unique because if you're in an employment most don't yeah you if you're in an employment arrangement you may be prohibited from directly marketing to them um that doesn't mean you can't indirectly market to them through a um, billboard or or uh or newspaper ad but most people find those to be fairly ineffective um print advertising and and things of the sort they always try to sell you on it but you don't get a lot of people from that the real selling point is you main, main, you know if you're personable if you're a good doctor um, you know that many people come to you regardless of price if you don't go nuts with your pricing points um, but get out in the community be involved again this is what doctors used to do they used to be very involved in the community now we're so busy most of us are not we're, we're in our little our little cubby holes and, and no one knows who we are other than when they come to see us in the clinic we'll, we'll go go part of your become uh, part of a, a church group you know, you'll get a lot of referrals from that because they'll meet you. And go, what? Do you, oh yeah, you're doing this. Oh yeah, you know, this is neat new thing. And you know, we work for you. We can save you money. You know, we get the cheap meds, labs, imaging. Have a have a thirty second pitch. That's a weird thing to say. The elevator pitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The elevator pitch, right? Yeah, you got to have pitch. the elevator pitch. Absolutely, um, because because in that little thirty seconds, when people just say, hey, what do you do for a living? They don't really want a thirty minute description. So you have to figure out how to condense it into into about about 30 seconds to capture that. And, and some people will say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Great. Now you've got it in. Some people will glaze over and, you know, don't keep pushing it. Enjoy them just as a friend and they're not going to be a patient. Um, but anyway, being involved, get your name out there. People will recognize you. And, and eventually, even if they don't immediately come, they, as you see them more and more at these family events, uh, you know, church events, chamber of commerce, charity, whatever it is that you're doing that's being active in the community, um, men will, many will become more and more interested in, and start to see you. So be active. You can do formal talks. Again, chamber of commerce, great, great option for that. Um, th- this is a new enough model that it does garner media interest to a certain extent. Um, so, you know, we'll, you'll have sometimes newspapers or, or radio stations that are interested in this model. Uh, feel free to call into radio shows, mainly if the topic is healthcare, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, have that as an option. It gives you more validity. It, it's funny, and you see this with healthcare in general. If somebody sees something on the TV, they'll see it. Well, this news anchor, this t- 
TV doctor said this, so it's true, you know. But you can say, well, I have the same training. I've been saying that for years. You never listen to me, you know. So, so um, there's something about being in a media source that seems to give people extra credibility. So if you become that person, immediately you become the authority in people's minds. Uh, and that can be free. So if you're contributing to uh, to uh, local newspapers, TV stations, writing op-eds, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll get your, you know, out there too. Well, and, and if you look historically, that's how all practices are built, right? I mean, I think whether you were a surgeon, a specialist, or a primary care physician, I mean, you could be primary care coming into an established practice as a guy's retiring and you just pick up the patient panel. But I think probably lots of people would come to communities and they would have to promote themselves in some way. I mean, it's not probably newspaper print advertising. It's you've established all of a sudden gets sick. They look for someone and they find you. I mean, now, of course, with social media, there are other ways to find people. But the, the allure, of course, with working for, with large systems is that you walk into a patient panel already well established in a, in a large referral network. Of course, the disadvantage is you've got to practice medicine in that model, and if that's not what you want to do, then that's yeah. that's you know that's lot, that's lot, the a lot of ducks get cost. stuck in what they call the golden handcuffs, because it sounds wonderful right off the bat. You can come right out, get six figures. You know, you're gonna we're gonna uh, give you a retirement plan and all these other things, but before you know it, you're trapped, and and it actually could cost you a lot of money. You could have no competes. There's a lot of things that could get you stuck in that model, and you could be miserable with the difficulty uh, difficulty escaping it. Right, and forced to relocate. If it, like yeah. with a no compete, like you can't compete with, you can't work in this specialty for one year for within 30 miles of any of our facilities, and maybe we're a regional center, so you've got to leave not only your community, but you've got to move 150 miles away or something potentially, yeah. right? So, all right, so <clears throat> lots of different ways to kind of build your practice. And um, do you have a website? Uh, I do. Mine's uh, www.yourchoicedirectcare.com. I'm not sure you need did you, www anymore. Yeah. Everybody assumes it. Did you, did you do it yourself or did you, have, you pay um, someone? I, well, I didn't do it myself. I, I, I went with a company who, who uh, it was called Red Letter. And, and they, they, with my input, they set it up. But it wasn't, it was something that was, there, that's probably, there, there are other ones out there doing less expensive than that. There, there are a billion uh, uh, website development companies now. And most are quite inexpensive. Um, that's a wonderful place for people to get access to you. Um, just re- and put a lot of information on that. I've heard kind of some, some references to make it work for you. And they're right. Put a ton of information on there so you can reference people to it. Put a, if you do videos, if you do talks, post them on the on your website post your prices describe the model there are a bunch of other direct primary care websites out there right now that you can essentially copy sure so you know a lot of that verbiage is already put up there so you don't have to recreate the wheel right and there are very few trademark or copyright restrictions on on websites i don't think there are any really most for the most part so that covers most so that covers most of the startup costs the other the other thing that always has intrigued me is the pharmacy aspect of it because it never occurred to me that people other than pharmacists could distribute medications. And so I talked to Dr. Mott. She said, well, you can get, you know, she can get like a thousand lisinopril or something for five, ten dollars or something like that. Or it's yeah. very inexpensive. And then she sells them for 50 cents for a 30 day supply where it's at, which even though it's generic, it's still $4 at, you know, pharmacy. So, yep. so how do you, what kind of drugs do you stock? How do you find the, the wholesalers and how do you, how do you price things? And, and then how do you get a license? Yep. So, is, so is that each, state, I imagine that's somewhat state dependent, it is right? Very much state dependent. As I understand it, Texas, for example, you still can't do it. But in the state of Michigan, we're we're blessed that we can, 
and that was largely designed for the oncologists because oncologists mainly are, are the ones to, you know administering chemotherapy and things of that sort out of, in, out of their office infusions basically in their offices yeah. is kind of what the, yeah, yeah. Sure. so 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 it is legal in many states and Michigan is is one of them for a practitioner to dispense to their patients with an additional license, which is not hard to acquire. It's probably like $20,000 for license, right? <laughs> no, actually, I think the very, I don't remember what it was this year, but it's maybe like 80 bucks a year or something like that. It's very, <laughs> fairly easy to, to apply for and renew, and it doesn't take any additional you know, licensure beyond your medical license and what you've already done for that. Uh, so then there are certain requirements that you have to have with labeling and, and information about the drugs and things that sort of go along with this. And the beauty of the direct primary care specific EMRs is that some of them, like Atlas, actually incorporate that into the product. So, so for example, if you have a Dymo label maker, which costs you about 60 70 bucks, and, and the labels are couples. That's the one from Uzbekistan, or is that? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, for the nation of Dymo. No, <laughs> yes. Yes. No. The, the, uh, and and the, you know, they're used for labels for just about anything, but you get them uh, in a standard shipping label size and if you wrap that around a, a pill bottle lo and behold that's the same thing Myers and Kroger and all these other places and CVS are doing essentially creates a, a, a label essentially identical to that and then the program itself tracks your inventory tracks dispensing links it to the patient's chart it's very easy it's I was intimidated to do it because I had I not done it initially, and, and again, Josh had convinced me to do it. Well, you're worried handing out drugs, right? I mean, yeah. and drugs, and obviously these are medications, right? But, I mean, you're, you're concerned about people not selling stuff in the streets, yeah. blood pressure medicines, because you're not handing out, you're well, not, not, you're not dealing with... It's not market for hydrochlorothiazide <laughs> or something. Man, I really want to pee. I need some more. Uh, but you're, you're not distributing opioids, for instance. No. You, because yeah, it's just a, the DEA sort of thing, is, it makes it complicated, and the lock boxes and all yeah. that counts. I, mean, I guess theoretically you could, but don't bother. Don't do it. You open yourself up to so many, you know... Uh, Bumps if you you do that and theft being a big one yeah. right yeah people breaking your and yeah, yeah the so fact security. I tell people flat out we do not carry those <laughs> I never want that because people break into your office it's like oh. the convenience store right where it says we do not have anything over a hundred dollars and that access yeah, it's all time vault safe it. don't bother robbing our yeah, <laughs> convenience exactly. store yeah. all you can steal is a Slurpee so just <laughs> go somewhere <laughs> else you really want some Mobic here. here. <laughs> The uh, so so yeah so so anyway so you need lockable cabinets you need the, the you know you get pill bottles pill bottles are a penny or two a bottle I mean they're very inexpensive you buy them in bulk and and uh, and so basically you create the script in your electronic record system like you would in a normal electronic record s- system the difference is you hit print and then it prints out the label you you uh, 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 you've got your little pill bottle uh, there's two ways of doing it largely there's there many drug primary care docs invest in the, this automated pill counter. Uh, that will count them out. You, you can pour pour them into the top of the machine, and it has an optical scanner, and it'll pour them out and dispense it into the bottle immediately in the right quantity. And then you just put the cap on and put the Dymo label maker on, and hand it to the patient, and they're on their merry way. Um, and the the uh, the other approach, which is even easier than that, is many of them are, are dispensed in in bottles of ninety or 100 from, from the dispensaries. And, and there's many dispensaries, Andamed's, Benita. There's several other out there that, that do direct-to-physician uh, uh, distribution, and then we dispense to the patient. And if you get Simvastatin 90 and it's $1.50, you know, we, they're, they're, you, can, you can 
you can technically uh, you know, put that price where you think is appropriate. Most direct primary care docs do between 10 and 20% upcharge, not because you make money on it, but that covers the cost of the bottle, of the Dymo label maker and, and right. things of that sort. So you're basically not having a loss. And that's so important because that now has created a value for that patient. That patient, would, you know, for a three-month supply, maybe was going to spend 30 bucks. Now they spent two, you, you $2, you've wiped out at least 28 bucks of expense, which partially is covering your... And that's only one medication, right? Someone's on three medicines now maybe you've paid for the the membership because a lot of these people well probably most people have some sort of coverage right yeah. on some level right yeah. i encourage them to because we can do a lot of things but if somebody needs an appendectomy we can't you don't do that do in the that. office yeah i had somebody try to convince me to do a cath <laughs> and i strongly advised him against me doing that uh but uh he didn't understand the nuance of there's a difference between do- types of doctor but uh uh and th- his 39 dollar membership didn't cover cardiac cath uh, so 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 uh, uh but you know that we encourage people have have some sort of coverage a surprising number don't so which really shows there's a problem in our healthcare system when so many people are are, are bare and we're a medicaid expansion state right we so technically yeah. have as, as easy coverage as you can get anywhere in the country well i have a lot of medicaid patients which tells you the value of Medicaid if it's not uh, providing the services that it purports to serve to do. I mean, we have a lot of people who pay more on top of Medicaid. People who are already economically disadvantaged who say that extra thirty nine, forty nine bucks a month, but based on age, that's worth it because I can't see a doc anyway with Medicaid. At least now I can see one, mm-hmm. you know, or the wait is six months out until I could see one anyway. Um, so they should have some form of coverage, uh, Christian health sharing, and there's there's actually versions uh, that you don't even have to be Christian to use are a wonderful option for people who don't have a lot of pre-existing conditions. Um, inexpensive, or, well, relatively inexpensive high deductible plans are a great idea because uh, you're going to pay cash anyway under that model. It's just called a deductible, but really that means that's a fancy way of saying that you are paying for your care up until some set amount, right. in which case your insurance company may help contribute a, a portion to a false price. Um, we just say we're upfront. We we'll say we'll give you a better price from the get-go. You just pay us directly, and 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 you know instead of pretending not to pay for it, even though you are paying for it and you're deductible, and uh, we give them a better price. Usually, it's ninety percent cheaper than what they would have gotten anyway. And if you think about it, many insurance companies pay twenty percent of your cost. Well, if we're ninety percent cheaper, i.e., ten percent, their copay was twice as much as they could have gotten it from us without the insurance company involved at all. So they usually save money even over their copayments. The other benefit you provide is discounts, right? Yep. So working with local imaging. So, so there's a huge value you have as a doctor to talk to other doctors in the area. Doctors tend to be nice to each other. Um, when, when we, in regards to that, we totally second guess each other on diagnoses, but uh, in, in, in the sense of, right. And the radiologist never makes a diagnosis. Yeah, it could be this it, or it, it could be that. All over the place. <laughs> but, you know, go to your local imaging center. If you have one through a hospital, it's hard to negotiate with them. They, they, they get wonderful deals by not having transparent pricing. Uh, but if you have a private imaging center and some hospitals will work with you, but if you've got a private imaging center, go to them and say, Hey, if I send people to you are willing to pay cash right up front, can you give them a good price? And most will. And and then we get rid of the fallacy that MRIs are five thousand dollars, and and in our area we can get MRIs as low as two hundred and seventy bucks. And that's with the reading. That's Is that with the CD yeah, too? Professional and technical. Yeah, yeah. They'll give you actually not a CD. A little. Do you have the patients pay you, and then you pay the facility? No. Some do. Um, they're they're um, we we don't do that in our. Some DPCs do that. Ours is uh, a little different. We actually, which is really nice. We took ourselves out of that. We got them to agree to give these wonderful pricing and and not involve us. So um, and and there's some legal things around it for, called uh, uh, what? Jeez, um, 
prompt pay discount, I believe. So basically, if you pay at the time of service, anybody could theoretically get that price that they're giving to their cash pay patients. Well, but if you think about it, no insurance company pays immediately. So that ends up really meaning only the um, the people who are paying at the time of the service get that kind of discount. And, and because that's less hassle for the, the radiologists, too, they, they do a service immediately. The money's in their pocket. They love it, too, so they're able to give good rates. Right, because you're kind of doing direct primary care, at least with a transaction. Direct radiology care. They don't have to use their back office in coding. 70% of primary care is overhead, right? Yeah, that's probably right. I used to think it was about 50%, but yeah, you're probably right. Because it was. I know that my cost dropped far more than 50%. I never quantified it exactly, but yeah, it's probably closer to 70 so that's pretty much it. Well, labs too. Oh, right, Actually, the labs too, right. Too, yeah. You have your own laboratory, phlebotomist. You have all kinds of people working there, right? Yeah, so we got real clever. We had the lab pay for our phlebotomist. So so, uh, so we don't even pay the phlebotomist. So we have a, the phlebotomist comes to your office? Yeah, the phlebotomist comes to our office a couple times a week. There's There are labs that, that will be willing to work with you. Quest, LabCorp, both work with direct primary care doctors, though I found the best pricing to be through other places like Vista or True Health Diagnostics. Uh, reach out to them if they're, and ask if they'll give you. Most of them will be more than happy to try to acquire as much business as you can give them. And, and many of them will give you really good rates on, on – um, uh, on the labs, so you get these people who are paying cash for their care. Now that's a little different. That's uh, we're act as a financial intermediary on those. So in those cases, we order labs for them. They do charge us as the doctor. We pay them, but then we charge the patient. We basically act as a financial pass-through. Um, they have to pay us at the time they do it, because otherwise if they renege on a, on a lab fee, we would eat that. And since we don't make money on that, we can't be eating that kind of expense. So patients are where you order the CBC and are being charged $2 right now before the lab is drawn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have them come in a couple days a week, and they, they come in on those days, and, and, a, and a CBC, I think, is about $3.50. Um, actually, that's with a 3% markup to cover the transaction fee of the credit card. So there is a credit card transaction fee when you do that, so remember to incorporate that into your pricing structure. But we don't make money on that. We uh, People are just unthrilled. I mean, I have one example. I collect, I'm a really weird person. I collect medical uh, bills for a hobby, and I had one gentleman who, who paid $1,100 to a local university hospital uh, in, a, in our area and he came to me after getting shocked because he, he just went over there with his insurance card and, and the order they got $1,100 charge that he had to pay because it went to his deductible um, came to me and said how much would that have been and it would have been around 90 some dollars or, or no actually I think it was $106 $106 so it was, it was again 90% cheaper so he would have saved essentially $1,000 on one blood draw by just getting more rational pricing, which would have paid for us for years. One blood draw, he could have seen us for years with the price difference. It's an incredible thing that those savings are out there. Yeah. I don't know how to explain how it happened. It's hard to imagine you can get personalized care for so much less money. It's kind of hard to explain how we just got here with prices. And I think it's interesting, too, because it, it, you're talking about, the, you know, it's amazing, these prices. And and it, it was amazing to me. In fact, it's still kind of fun to, like, play around on these websites that you know, are distributors' websites of the meds and stuff and go, oh, wow, that's this? Oh, like, that's so fun. I'm going to click on that and buy some of that. And we stock up our pharmacy, and it's it's wonderful to get 1,000 lisinopril, like you said, in, like, 899 you know, for 1,000. So, so it's not a penny a pill. It's less than a penny a pill. 
Um, and I, recently I was uh, giving a lecture, and I, one of the drugs we priced out, I think it was actually lisinopril at that point, we realized that a month of it, so 30 pills, we could dispense to the patient for 24 cents. Which when you think about that, I, I was telling him, I said, listen, you know, that means we can treat hypertension, one of the leading causes of premature preventable death in the United States, for an entire month for less than the cost of a single gumball. Because, you know, if you go to Big Boy or something, you got the gumball machine there, drop in a quarter, well, you could have had a month of blood pressure pills for the same thing. To be fair, it's a bit tastier. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it is delicious. And I can't say lisinopril is, but... Now, those are the things kind of hard to wrap your head around. I mean, you know, where we are when we talk about solutions, we're not really talking about solutions, right? I mean, I mean, I think we're trying to add quality metrics, algorithms. I was talking about this in an earlier show. We're treating people like they're in an assembly line and the same, but, you know, they're not. Everyone's different. Everyone responds differently to drugs. They're different to ages, size. It's not like they're all built the same and parts are in the same place. You just can't put them all in an algorithm and treat them that way. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, so well, why algorithm, right? Why why algorithms? You know, when I, I'm sure you were about the same same age, the uh, when I trained in the '90s, algorithms were just coming into vogue, and it was kind of funny because at the time they had all these disclaimers on it, said, you know, this is not to circumvent clinicians' judgment. You know, this is to be a tool to assist with complex decision making. Numerous disclaimers. This is never to trump the doctor. Well, now they're mandated. They're not an option anymore. They're mandated. And the question is, what happened there? And it was based on, on uh, financial, false financial beliefs. Well, MRIs are expensive. So, right, they're $5,000. You know, in, in 2014 in the state of Michigan, I think the average price on MRI in, in the state of Michigan was $3,500. I just told you that's not true, that you can get them for as low as $270. So if you have a severe back pain, by algorithm, even if you deem it's the appropriate first test to do, and obviously, you know, it's not in all situations, but you can't order the MRI. You must order the X-ray first because MRIs are expensive. And the X-ray is useless for the most part, yeah, right? X-ray may be useless in that situation, absolutely. So, but we've just established that, that that's based on a false pretense, you know, that the MRI is expensive. Therefore, we must control the doctor's behavior and make them order things in a different way. Um, so so uh, it, when the uh, X-rays frequently bill at 350 bucks, which is more than the MRI actually costs a person. So now we should go, get to the point where the doctor can have an open discussion with the patient. Say, well, the MRI is probably a little more useful. It's $270, but it's your $270. You know, the X-rays now, we get those better priced too. They're about 45 bucks, And maybe they're adequate. But maybe for a more reasonable price, that extra $200 is worth it to you to go right to the more effective study. What do you want to do? We don't have that option under the insurance model. We have that option under direct primary care, and, and that's a beautiful thing. Well, we'll have to wrap it up here, Chad. I want to thank you a lot for coming on and going through how you get this direct primary care thing started, whether you're a resident or an established physician. Obviously, a lot of resources we talked about during the show, a ton of them. Uh, those can all be found on the show notes page, which will be at www.theparadox.com slash 004. Or you can just go to the website. You can search on the episodes. Uh, it's been a great discussion and learning about how direct primary care changed, not only just changed your life, but how it really can transform, I think, the care for patients. So once again, thanks for being on the show. And best of luck to you with your practice and your new partner. And continue success in the direct primary care field. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. 
Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. issue but it looks like it's fine now mm-hmm. just the recording seemed to stop for a little bit it's going now uh that's the beauty i can cut this out anytime right? and every word i said was gold I mean, no. it, <laughs> it was solid i mean that was some really solid commentary there i i hope we didn't lose all of it well, i think we could go for hours it'd be fun it, it's just fun <laughs> BSing. okay